it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen live, we have a podcast. It is growing, thanks to all of you, big time. It's free of charge, on demand every day, GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. And a programming note, in my Fox News contributor duties, I will be guest hosting The Big Show tomorrow and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, along with some of my colleagues. Hope to see you on the TV side this weekend. Here on the radio, here's the lineup today. Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia, the incumbent there, trying to get reelected in November. He'll be live with us. Coming up in the next hour, Charles Payne of Fox Business Network. Oh, boy. The inflation report today, worse than expected. And it was already horrible. If it were flat or slightly down, it would still be horrible. But it was worse. We will get full analysis and reaction from Charles. And then in our final hour, brace yourselves, Jimmy Fallon joins us, and God knows what might happen. So that's coming up in our final hour, the 5 p.m. Eastern hour, the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. As we get going here today, let's talk about last night. We're not going to avoid the topic. We're not going to dwell on it. But the January 6th committee had their first hearing last night. I watched all of it about two hours. Brett and Martha and the team on Fox Business Network. And I've offered a few th- a few thoughts on the air about this already, about the committee itself. I know a lot of people on the right say it doesn't have credibility, it's too biased, it's too partisan. Nancy Pelosi picked everyone, rejected some of the Republicans offered by the GOP leadership, so the Republicans effectively boycotted the whole thing, with the exceptions, of course, of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. I agree that this is a pretty lopsided, one-sided committee, but also there was an offer, there was an opportunity for a truly bipartisan commission. That was in the offing, and Republicans in Congress rejected it. So I think it's a little bit difficult to honestly analyze the situation and to say, well, it's too partisan, it's too one-sided when Your side is complaining about that rejected an actual bipartisan opportunity on a commission. Right. I think that that is something of a disingenuous argument that we are hearing from some Republicans. Are there fair criticisms of the committee? Obviously, Adam Schiff should be nowhere near it, in my opinion. He's not a credible person. The fact that Democrats and the media are casting it in such partisan terms about the upcoming election. New York Times framing it as a chance for Democrats to try to realign the conversation. And we talked about some of the details like progressive activists organizing watch parties around the country. I think that's really weird. Free ice cream at the flagship watch party in Washington, D.C. 
That does not, to borrow a phrase, meet the moment. If this is supposed to be a serious, credible look at what happened on January the 6th of last year, treating it kind of like a partisan sporting event, to me, isn't a great idea. Now, I will reiterate what I've said many times in writing, on the air here, on television about January 6th. It was a national disgrace that should never be allowed to happen again. It was a national disgrace that should never be allowed to happen again. The committee last night put together a lengthy video compilation from the riot, from the attack, from the assault, and it was very difficult to watch. It wasn't new in that we were familiar with a lot of these things. Some of the footage we hadn't seen before, but it still turned my stomach. That was a dark moment in American history. To have a whipped up mob trying to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power, which is sacred in the United States of America. And the whipped up crowd, members of the mob, the people who committed the actual crimes, should be held accountable. They were also there because of a lie. The lie being that the election was rigged or stolen, which it was not. Joe Biden won the election. He is a failing president. I did not vote for him. I can't wait for his party to be swept out of power in a few months. And I hope that the White House changes hands after 2024. But he was elected. And Donald Trump over and over again told the lie that that was not what really happened. And a lot of people believed him. And the result was January 6th. And I know there are probably some of you listening right now who hate to hear that, who disagree. I'm going to call me whatever, never Trump, rhino, whatever the pejoratives might be. That's what I believe, and I think it's backed by the evidence. And if you disagree, look, the Trump campaign, I don't want to recapitulate the whole thing. The Trump campaign had an opportunity to prove fraud in court, and they failed to do it. In fact, in most cases, they didn't even try to prove fraud. And what we learned from the committee last night was there were prominent people within Trump's administration and campaign telling him that, in fact, he had lost. From top campaign lawyers to his own attorney general, Bill Barr, who he's now, of course, trashing today because that's what he does. It's exhausting. They knew they lost. He knew he lost. He couldn't allow that to stand, I think, because of his ego and his quest to stay in power. And so he told this giant lie. The whole thing spun out of control. And the result was the national disgrace of January 6th. So as I said, there was some new stuff that emerged last night. Clips of some of these officials testifying to the committee about various things like we told Trump, sir, you lost. We looked at our data internally. We knew we lost. We conveyed that to him. Liz Cheney, who was effectively the ranking member on this committee, Benny Thompson, the Democrat, was the chairman, is the chairman. She said that there's evidence that the committee is going to present that there were multiple Republican congressmen who sought presidential pardons in connection with January 6th. I'd like to know who those people are, their identities, why they were allegedly seeking presidential pardons. We also heard this, and I would like to see, again, 
who said this, what the evidence is, whose testimony this is. Because last night they sort of laid out their case that they're going to present over weeks. Am I going to be watching all of these things? No. I was going to watch last night. I don't think I'm going to go back week after week watching the latest installment. If news emerges, we'll cover it here. But I'm not like hanging on every word of this thing. It was terrible. It was really bad. We knew it in real time. We knew it that week. We knew it during the Trump impeachment. A lot of that video, the second Trump impeachment. We revisited on the one year anniversary. It's like the viscerally negative feeling that you have, at least for me, hasn't changed. I'll talk about the political impact, which I think is minimal, honestly, in a second. I'm first focusing on the substance from last night. So listen to Cut 28. Here was Cheney going through, and she spoke for almost 30 minutes in a very meticulous, specific indictment, basically, laying out evidence, previewing what their evidence is going to show, and then occasionally tossing to, like, clips and sound bites. Including, for example, when Trump put out a tweet in the middle of the riot, trashing Mike Pence, basically accusing him of being disloyal, not doing what he needed to for the country. There was a rioter with the bullhorn announcing, reading out loud Trump's tweet in real time to the mob. That was the mob that started chanting, hang Mike Pence. They thought they were doing Trump's bidding. In all of this, it's clear from the video. Like it or not, that's the evidence. You can hate every person on the committee, and I'm not a fan of quite a few of them. The evidence and the video and what happened and the testimony, they're irrelevant to it. The facts are what's relevant. So this is at least the allegation that the committee says that they're at least going to have some testimony to back up what former President Trump allegedly said during the melee, during the chaos, during the violence, cut 28, listen. You will hear that President Trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. Would that shock you if that were true? Wouldn't really shock me. I'd like to know, again, who is willing to say that is what they heard under oath. We don't know who she's quoting there. I'll withhold some judgment till we get more information. But it was difficult to watch, especially the video which I encourage you to check out even if you never want to think about January 6th again. I think there are some people who almost like fetishize it. It's the most important day in our history for all these reasons and hence the watch parties. You have people who hate Trump hanging on every word. They're going to celebrate this committee and every single one of their hearings like it's a Super Bowl. There are other people who don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to look at it. They want to dismiss the whole thing as illegitimate. Then there are people like me who are horrified by January 6th, interested in the facts, skeptical of the committee in some ways, but also feel like it's not really affecting at least how I view the upcoming elections in 2022. It might spark some conversations for 24, 
right? Like, do Republican voters really want the guy who is still insisting that he was cheated out of the last election based on no verifiable evidence, but he's willing to obsess and fixate over that and relitigate it over and over again as a point of personal pride? Do you want that guy leading your party into the next presidential election again? That's something that Republican voters are going to have to decide, and they might have that opportunity to make that exact decision coming up in the future. That's a discussion for another day. The more pressing immediate discussion is 2022, the upcoming elections in November. And with the inflation number that I mentioned at the very top, that dropped the day after these hearings. And if you want to know what most voters are going to be thinking about or more likely, much more likely to be thinking about in November at the polls, it's not a committee on Capitol Hill. It's not what happened a year and a half ago. It's what's happening right now. The cost of gasoline and food, etc. That's the reality. Oh, and one more thing as an aside. When we come back, I'll mention this. While the committee hearing was happening last night, and you had all of official Washington hanging on every word, the media eating it up, something else was happening simultaneously in the same neck of the woods, greater Washington, D.C. You might even call it an attack against our democracy. It got so much less attention. Isn't that odd? We'll fill in those details as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services Marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for tuning in today. So last night on the panel on the Fox coverage of the January 6th committee, one of the analysts is law professor Jonathan Turley. So I'm watching him on TV at my hotel room in New York. And I'm looking at my phone and my Twitter feed and Turley's tweeting about something else that's happening. Quote, 
protesters have now descended upon the home of Justice Amy Coney Barrett and her family, including seven children. This is just one day after the alleged attempted murder of her colleague, Justice Kavanaugh. These protesters are screaming into bullhorns to harass a justice because she disagrees with them on the interpretation of the Constitution. Yet even law professors have praised the targeting of the homes of justices and have become, quote, even more aggressive. We learned yesterday that this project of left-wing agitation, where they've doxed the justices and they've organized mobs to go to their house to intimidate them, it's illegal. We've mentioned this before. This is an illegal thing that they are doing. It violates federal law. And where's the enforcement of this? From the Biden-Garland Justice Department. I'm all for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and peaceful protests. Go to the Supreme Court, pick it there. Do not dox and publish the home addresses of Supreme Court justices and go to their house. It's outrageous. And the fact that they were doing it literally the day after Brett Kavanaugh, someone went to go assassinate him at his house with a gun and a knife, zip ties, pepper spray. What stopped this guy was armed officials, U.S. Marshals. He decided not to take them on and turned himself in, but he had a plan and the means to carry out that plan. He came all the way from California to do it. That happened late night, early morning then, Wednesday morning. Wednesday afternoon, the agitator showed up at Kavanaugh's house for another protest. That day. Then the next day, it was Amy Coney Barrett. They're doubling down. And why wouldn't they? They haven't been condemned. The White House has still not condemned the doxing of Supreme Court justices. That, which is just a mind-blowing thing to say. They've been given ample opportunity. Jen Psaki, back when she was press secretary, she had many opportunities. She declined to do so. And now the doxing contributed to an assassination plot. And rather than saying, gosh, maybe this has gone a little too far, maybe we should ease off a little bit. These left-wing groups have done the opposite, doubling, tripling down. And as Molly Hemingway noted on this show yesterday, not only are they doxing the street addresses of the of the private residences where the justices live with their families, the conservative justices, by the way. One of these groups also put out identifying information into the public square about the church that Amy Coney Barrett attends with her family, the house of worship, and the school where she sends her children. They're putting out information in the public realm about the school that ACB sends her kids to. These are horrible people. This is extremely dangerous. Kids are supposed to be off limits, families, private homes. That's not fair game. And we have Democrats who are all gung-ho about January 6th and the attack on democracy and attack on our institutions and all of that. And I agree with them on a lot of it, by the way, because I try to be 
intellectually honest and consistent, who then, in many cases, are silent or sort of waffling, wishy-washy, equivocating on this stuff. Even within hours of one of those justices being targeted by an assassin who, thank God, failed to carry out the assassination. There are double standards, and they are egregious. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, the website, podcast free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Right there, GuyBensonShow.com, free of charge, on demand to all of you. Joining us now is Brian Kemp, the 83rd governor of the great state of Georgia, a Republican, the incumbent running for re-election in November. And Governor Kemp, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good afternoon, Guy. Delighted to have you back. I know many of our listeners in Atlanta, 106.3 Extra, are happy to hear your voice here on our national show. But we talk so much about Georgia because, as you know, it's been kind of ground zero for American politics for a couple cycles in a row here and likely again will be a huge proving ground this November in these midterms. Before we look ahead, Let's just pause for a moment. We haven't had you on the show since you won your primary. So, number one, congratulations on being renominated. Number two, holy cow, the margin, 52 points, was it? I mean, were your internal polls showing anywhere close to that? Because that's a whopping number. Well, thanks, Guy. Look, we're very excited. I mean, we just kept our head down every day, worked hard every day, tried to win every day, and you know, our internals were good, but I, I think a lot of people underestimated the ground game that we had. I mean, we were obviously raising a lot of money and doing all the things that we need to do on a direct advertising front, but we also had a very robust ground game, and we need to have that. You know, we're going to have to have that to beat Stacey Abrams. We're going to have to raise a tremendous amount of money. As you know, she was in Hollywood or somewhere out in California with a bunch of movie stars yesterday or today or something raising money, and you know, we're going to have to continue to work work hard and grind it out, uh, not only on the airwaves, but also just door-to-door and voter-to-voter and getting our folks registered. I believe if we do that, we're going to have a great night November 8th in 2022. You said she's out there fundraising in California. I'm not surprised that she would be fundraising out of state because she said out loud that your state, Georgia, the state that she wants to run— that I guess in her own mind she is sort of the incumbent, uh, even though she's not. But she said Georgia is the worst state in the country in which to live. You must have done a double take when you saw that quote from her. I mean, that is quite something. That's quite a soundbite for her to pop off about since she wants to lead the state. Uh, It's just it's incredible. I think it just makes a lot of people, quite honestly, guy, just shake their head. But she said a lot of a lot of really interesting things. You know, she criticized me when we reopened our economy. She criticized me when I kept it open on the the second wave. And, 
you know, she criticized me when we pushed to get her kids back in school, and she criticized me when we didn't have mandates on masks and vaccines, and then she didn't abide by those herself. And, you know, I think people really think Stacey's just gotten very hypocritical. Uh, she's not worried about her state. She's more worried about being in Hollywood, New York, selling her book over the last couple of years. But, you know, Marty and the girls and I, we the greatest state in the country to live, work, and raise our families, and we're grinding away every day doing what we told people we would do. You know, we're doing that as we speak, sending a billion dollars back to the taxpayers. We've suspended the gas tax, trying to help people fight through this 40-year high Biden inflation. And quite honestly, you know, President Biden credited Stacey Abrams for him getting elected, and she's taking that credit. And it's their policies uh, that really have turned our country upside down, and we cannot allow that to happen in Georgia. Yeah, and you, know, you were talking about some of the hypocrisy from Stacey Abrams. There was that famous photograph with her sitting in a classroom filled with kids, big smile on her face for this picture. Every child all around her wearing masks required to do so. She was not wearing a mask. That picture went everywhere. Did you see the video of her a couple days ago asking a younger girl, to take her mask off for a photo because of the optics. I mean, I guess maybe she learned from that mistake, but it doesn't seem like the actual lesson was learned about the policy itself, about force masking of children. God knows what she might do wielding power if she gets it in November. It seems like maybe she's learned a little bit of the political optics lesson, but not the underlying fundamental important lesson on policy. Well, it's just more of the same. It's the same way, like, you know, as you know, I know you've been looking at the numbers in our primary. I mean, we had record turnout, record number of voters voting, almost like a presidential election in the gubernatorial year. And it wasn't just a Republican primary. The Democrats turned out in record number. And it was Stacey yep. Abrams and Joe Biden that were saying a year ago, you know, the bill we passed to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat was going to suppress the vote. And it was Jim Crow 2.0 and, and all yep. these other things. And, you know, Abrams said, hey, she pressured Major League Baseball to move the game, and then she came out and said, no, don't move the game. Well, Georgians are tired <laughs> of that. They want consistent leaders. They want somebody that's going to be honest with them and put them first, which is, again, why we cut taxes again, which she criticized all those things. You know, she's criticizing us putting money back in the pockets of hardworking Georgians. She criticized when we suspended the gas tax. She didn't like the tax cut we did. You know, she said, I'd never do the largest teacher pay raise in state history, and we've done that. And I think people realize that. They realize who's been fighting for them every day and who's been worried about themselves. And that's what we got to continue to do. I'm glad that you brought up the voter suppression issue. I was going to raise it myself. And I want to stay there just for a moment because this is not just like a minor thing. You had the entire power of the Democratic Party the bully pulpit of the president of the United States, supported, of course, by your opponent, Stacey Abrams, much of the media, a shameful percentage, in my view, of corporate America, all repeating and amplifying huge lies about what the Georgia law would do on election reform. And they went for the jugular. They said it was racist. President Biden said it was worse than Jim Crow, which is just an astounding, insulting thing and misappropriation of history uh, to say that type of thing, but he did. Abrams has been a cheerleader on this issue. It's her signature issue, fear-mongering about so-called voter suppression. This is about being, you know, the modern-day equivalent of Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor and George Wallace all rolled into one. These are the things that they said. 
over and over again. And Major League Baseball pulled out the All-Star game based on these lies. And here we have the first test in the real world of that whole litany of untruths, or at least the allegations. You know, would it prove out to be correct? The first test, the first opportunity for voter so-called suppression to take place was in this primary cycle in your state and between the last governor's cycle in 2018 and this one, increased turnout. It was up by three quarters of a million people across the board. Big turnout with, uh, with Republicans, big turnout increased among Democrats, huge triple turnout among African-Americans in this primary. The reality has been completely and utterly I would say, conclusive in proving everything that they said to be wrong. And the response that we've heard from Stacey Abrams, governor, is, oh, well, just because the turnout went way up by 750,000 or so people doesn't mean that there wasn't suppression. Uh, I, I, does she feel any embarrassment or shame over that type of ridiculous claim? Can't she just take the L and admit that she was wrong? No, no, they cannot do that. They're never going to admit they're wrong. You know, what they want is never going to be enough. I mean, this is a great example for big corporations of Major League Baseball. You're never going to please these people. They're always going to come after you. And this was the the ultimate really woke cancel culture that so many people uh, are sick of, Guy. And I'm talking about people that don't normally pay attention to politics. You know, people are tired of being toyed with by folks like Stacey Abrams that were out for their own personal and political agenda, whether it's pressuring over a signature issue of hers that she's made a lot of money off of, voting rights and, you know, claiming voter suppression when she knows Mm -hmm. it's not even true, whether it's, you know, making our children political pawns like we saw during the pandemic with, you know, a lot of people not wanting to get our kids back in the classroom when we know the data in the Trump administration and the data in the Biden administration it's the same data. It says our kids need to be in the classroom. doesn't say it's going to be easy and our educators won't have to fight through some things, but they've done that. They've been willing to do that because they know what's best for these kids. And I think a lot of these people start to figure out, you know, and I told, I've told a lot of people this on the voting, and it's not me. I think we're... We're losing the governor there. We're going to try to get his uh, his phone back in just a moment. It's Governor Brian Kemp, Republican of Georgia, and he was just finishing up his thought about the pandemic, policies, and some of the untruths being perpetrated still by his opponent coming up in the general election, Stacey Abrams. And I want to let him finish that thought when we have him restored. I'm going to say this, though. The next series of questions that hopefully I'll have an opportunity to ask him about involve inflation, the economy, and crime. We'll get to those issues, but we do have the governor back. Feel free to finish that thought, Governor, real quick. Well, I was just going to say, Guy, you know, that that was the ultimate cancel culture that you saw playing out. And now people are realizing they got hoodooed by these folks and that it's never enough. You're never going to please them. So they really ought to just pay attention, read legislation, and stand for the truth. I mean, that's the right thing to do. Um, and, I, and I think that's the way things are going to play out. But there's a lot of people that don't normally pay attention to politics that are now realizing who's been truthful with them, who's been a steady leader, and, and who's just playing politics. And I think that's one 
reason that we're going to have a good, good yeah, and I think that the polls do suggest that you guys are on a path to victory, but there's a lot of work that's going to have to go into that. I guess you were up, I've seen, three points, five points, six points. It's a good national environment for Republicans for some of the issues that were in, and for some of the reasons that we're going to get into here in just a second. But the credibility issue that you just pointed out, I think, is exactly right. When Stacey Abrams and her whole ally group and their team told voters, This is going to be voter suppression. This is going to be terrible. People will be dying of thirst as they wait in long lines to vote. And it's all based on, you know, racism and all of this. And then the exact opposite of all of that actually transpires in reality. People look around and say, oh, gosh, I guess someone wasn't truthful with us. And I hope that some voters remember that. It's a teachable moment. I hope some organizations and companies and corporations remember that because they embarrass themselves by going along with a lot of these lies. Uh, Governor, I know that you're sort of in a tough cell phone spot. I want to ask you about inflation today. 8.6% increase of overall CPI year over year, an even worse number than we were expecting. I know this is hammering the people of Georgia and every state in this country. Not much you can do as a governor, but it has to be probably issue number one that you hear about. Yes? Well, it, it's just awful to see how quickly the Biden policies have eroded the economy. They've eroded the policies that we've had on the border and a lot of other things. And look, Stacey Abrams is one that embraced these policies, and that's the same thing she did to our state. What we're trying to do, guy, we cannot fix every broken problem in Washington, D.C. There's no doubt about that. But that's why we're returning over a billion dollars of taxpayer money instead of spending it. We're putting it back in the pockets of our folks to help them when they go to the grocery store, to help them when they go to the gas pump. You know, we cut taxes. We've got a great economy, so we're trying to keep that rolling despite what they're doing nationally in Washington. And uh, I believe we're we're suited to fight through this better than most states. But, man, we got to get some cavalry up to D.C. in November. Yep, and Stacey Abrams, and really every Democrat in America not named Joe Manchin, or Kirsten Cinema, they supported every single dollar of this massive inflationary spending that was spent, and they all, except for those two, wanted five trillion more spent. And I mean, it's it's crazy for them to try to feel our pain on inflation when they have actively supported policies that have fueled and aggravated the problem in a very acute way. Last question, Governor Kemp, before we let you go on crime. I know this has been something you've been focused on for more than a year we've talked about it over multiple interviews what's the latest in georgia on this issue it's one of the driving concerns in this election again you have some tools at your disposal as governor some of this comes down to you know crime in specific jurisdictions where do things stand right now on that critical issue in your state well we are continuing to do a lot of things to go after violent criminals and street racers and street gangs in the state of georgia Uh, I was out with our crime suppression unit last weekend uh, who is working with local law enforcement and a lot of other partners to go after these violent criminals. And it's incredible what they've done, Guy. They've they've arrested 526 people that had outstanding warrants, 27 of them for murder. We've impounded over 1,400 cars and continue to go after these folks. We passed legislation and put money in the budget this year to give more powers to the attorney general and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to go after street gangs. 
in our state. And when local prosecutors won't do that, we have the ability to do that now. And, you know, what's so sad about this is Stacey Abrams has been serving on the board of some nonprofit foundation that's increased funding since she got on the board to defund the police professors and other people. I mean, it's just insane that somebody that wants to be our governor uh, would even sit on a an, on a board of that nature that's wanting to defund the, po- the police in this environment. And I think that, again, is going to be something that Georgia voters, you know, in the middle and in the center and, and to the left of center are going to stand up and go, hey, you know what? This, yep. We just cannot have this in our state. We've got to keep our and economy I'll... good and our community safe. I'll say this in closing, Governor. The reason that we spend so much time on this national show talking about your state is because at the gubernatorial level, you've got all the dishonesty about the election law. We covered that and sort of exposing those lies yet again. I think that's important. Your opponent lied about the last election in 2018. She became a giant celebrity within her party for lying about an election, which we're told is a horrible thing. I agree it is a horrible thing. She is the poster child on the Democratic side of election denial. And then on the Senate side, there's a crucial race between Herschel Walker and the incumbent Raphael Warnock that could determine Senate control in November. So we're keeping a very close eye on Georgia because what happens in Georgia really has an impact on what happens nationally in our politics. And for that reason, we're very grateful, Governor, that you spent some time with us here. We look forward to talking again. Brian Kemp, Georgia's Republican governor. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. Have a great weekend, everybody. You bet. You too. Quick break. Right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. We've got coming up in the next hour, Charles Payne from Fox Business Network to break down the inflation report that dropped today. And boy, did it drop like a bomb. We were expecting flat numbers, which are terrible to begin with. 8.3% year over year on CPI. It's 8.6%. It's running even hotter than the white hot number that we already had anticipated. And you get into the subcategories. It's brutal. We'll break that all down with Charles. Consumer sentiment plunges to a record low in June. And at the same time, listen to this. Gas prices have for the first time ever breached $5 a gallon. At the same time, food inflation has topped 10%. Derek Thompson at The Atlantic pointing that out. At the same time. So the stuff that people need to get around and to survive, up, 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 with no relief in sight. As Kamala Harris, our vice president, might say. We did it, Joe. Charles Payne is here on all of this with the details. The good, the bad, and especially the ugly. Straight ahead in a brand new hour of The Guy Benson Show from Hofstra University in Long Island, New York. Stay with us. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Happy Friday. Glad to have you all here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday and around the clock on demand for free 
at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is there also at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That includes bonus Benson on the weekend. It's all free. Programming note, I'll be co-hosting the big show on Fox News Channel TV side tomorrow and Sunday in the 5 p.m. Eastern hour. So set your DVRs or tune in live if you'd like. We are coming to you live from WRHU, student radio station at Hofstra University on Long Island in New York. We're here for the Talkers Convention. So a pretty cool opportunity. And the number one talker, if you will, in the country today is the economy and inflation. A huge number came in, an awful number came in this morning, leading to this Fox News alert. The Dow tanking. In response, I would say largely to the CPI number on inflation, it was expected to be bad and it was worse. So the Dow at the close down 880 points. Ending the day and the week at 31,392. With us now is Charles Payne of the Fox Business Network. He's got his own show there. You see him all over both channels all the time. Charles, always great to have you here. It's always great to be on, even in a day like today. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, set the stage here and let sort of like leading up to the number, the experts were anticipating 8.3%. Inflation, which is just shockingly bad, worst in four decades. We know all of this. Some people were speculating, could it maybe ease off just a little bit? It would still be really elevated and awful, but maybe starting to show that it's peaked. And then, boom, 8.6, Charles. Yeah. Yeah, you know what it is? The, uh, The sort of inflation guessing game now has been going on since December of last year, uh, almost every month. You know, initially, almost everyone would say it out loud. Yeah, you know, peak inflation, peak inflation. And now it was like, oh, we hope so. And instead of obviously with the, with gasoline prices going up every day and food prices going up, it was a, it was just sort of a hunch. I mean, there were some people who were bracing for a 10 number. So uh, in that respect, it was a little bit better than, than, than the worst case scenario. But there was a lot of hope that the core number would be better. In other words, when they strip out uh, energy and, and um, gas and food, so energy and food, and that number wasn't better than expected. So, you know, um, home furnishings, airline tickets, used cars and new vehicles, they still uh, remain persistently high. So there was no relief anywhere around, no. and it really is extraordinarily frustrating. So you got that as a one hit. And that, so the number comes out at 830. It sets the stage. The market's going to be down. We open with the Dow off 500 points, and we're kind of meandering there. And then the sentiment number came out. The monthly yep. sentiment number from the University of Michigan, and bam, the lowest number in history. <laughs> so, uh, in history of this series, which only goes back 85 years. So, wow. I mean, think of all the things that have happened in this country in the past 85 years, and yet consumer sentiment's never been this low. So, that was the extra almost 400 points. So, it's a good one two so, punch. The record low on consumer sentiment and a brand-new 40-year high on inflation. I mentioned in the last hour, Charles, that my buddy Derek Thompson at The Atlantic, he said you have at the same time food up 10% on inflation and gas prices at $5 a gallon at the same time in this country. That is just a brutal beating for Americans really in almost every income 
bracket. Maybe the very, very, very rich aren't really feeling it. But aside from that, everyone's feeling it. And the people who can least afford it are getting crushed the most. Real average hourly earnings wages down because even though wages are technically up, you're getting less for your buck because of this inflation. So wages really are down. I just want to rattle off a few of these examples just to illustrate how this looks in different sectors. Heather Long at the Washington Post had a few of them. Groceries, year over year, up 11.9%, the biggest increase since 1979, years before I was born. Chicken, if you want to go out and buy chicken to feed your family, up 17.4%, largest increase ever. Restaurants, up 9%, largest increase ever. Fuel oil, up 107%. This is all year over year. Largest ever. Mm -hmm. Electricity, plus 12, largest since 2006. Rent, plus 5.2%, largest since 1987. Airfare, plus 37.8%, largest increase since 1980, year over year. Services, 5.7%, the biggest since 1990, that year over year increase. I mean... There's you said no relief, Charles. I read these numbers and my heart just goes out to working class families with kids who are staring at prices at the gas pump in grocery stores, thinking about summer vacations like we can't do this. We can't do this. No, not this year, you know, and I think and we actually I think we're going to actually see you mentioned the airfares and, and, you know, of course, some people have hit the road already. But for people who really haven't and believe me, they wanted to. I mean, two years of being cooped up because of the, you know, the virus and all these restrictions. This was supposed to be the summer. Uh, This was going to be the one where we just let it let loose. We went out there and we had a lot of fun. And, you know, it's it's really the the real wages being down three percent in May. Uh, they've been down every single month going back to, I think, April of last year. And the real world is extraordinarily painful. And it's already there. I saw a few surveys today, once, once this week, rather, one survey where 65% of people are now uh, changing either the products or, you know, the, the brand, you know, buying generics. Mm-hmm. But like uh, 45% of, of uh, families, households where one parent may skip a meal to make sure all everyone else eats. But 9% of households where the entire family now has to skip a meal. I mean, think about that. It's really nuts. And then there, you've got families who are actually reducing electricity. Uh, and, you know, just it, it, it's maybe it's something we should be doing anyway. But, you know, it's not something you – it's like, yeah, hey, we got to start turning off all the lights or you're not using them, uh, turn off the air conditioner. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's not the first world kind of problems, uh, you know, that the issue that we normally – we just take for granted and – so we're in a whole different environment in a brand new different world that, I mean, again, in 40 years, there's a whole generation that's never seen inflation like this. Yep. This is, you know, welcome back Carter in a number of ways. And the new Jimmy Carter, the current president, Joe Biden, addressed this earlier. And I was like, is he going to say the same thing again? Yep. He said the same thing again. Cut 30, Charles. Listen to this. I understand Americans are anxious and they're anxious for good reason. I was raised in a household when the price of gasoline rose precipitously. It was the discussion at the table. It made a difference when food prices went up. But we've never seen anything like Putin's tax on both food and gas. Oh, like, bro, enough with the Putin stuff. Like, I get that. 
I mean, it's just it's a contributing factor, but it's so much beyond that to say, oh, that damn Putin did it again. And also this whole thing. Oh, I, I know. I remember how painful this can be. This guy's been a politician living in rarefied air of Washington, D.C. for like, what, 170 years, it feels like. He hasn't been in the real world in a very long time either. He hasn't. Uh, it's so insulting. I don't know why he has to, you know, throw out these bragging talking points. He's so tone deaf. This this inflation problem is the number one issue in America by far. Nothing is even near. Nothing is even in their same orbit. Uh, mm-hmm. And to sort of brush it off and to blame it on Putin, not admitting the mistakes that he's made. Uh, you know everything from the. Listen, when you pay people not to work, let's go to the genesis of all of this. When you pay people not to work, when you make more money, almost double what you might have made. Through unemployment, all the extra benefits, when the STEMI checks come through, you created an issue. You created a serious problem. Now we've got a wage price spiral. What's happened? According to ADP, every single month, the first four months, small businesses lost employment. Over a quarter of a million jobs. They can't compete. So you're going to have mom and shops going out of business. It just never ends. So we've got that. We've got the energy issue. Today, a spokesperson, as Cecilia Rouse said, uh, he's going to look into somehow trying to get more capacity for refineries. Why don't you build mm-hmm. one? Mm-hmm. You know, listen, take the Defense Production Act and forget about airlifting baby formula. Let's do something contributive, really do something positive with it. This is an emergency. We can use two or three new refineries. You want to really bring down the price of oil for a long time? Let us drill for it and let us refine it. But of Charles course, Payne. you know what? Well, it's, uh, don't get me started, guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're rolling. You're definitely rolling. I, I just hate when they brag about how great the economy is. People are suffering. Yep. And, and now the, the last question that I have for you, I have about a minute left. Janet Yellen, I saw a New York Times headline that she's assuring us that she thinks it's unlikely that the U.S. will end up in a recession from all of this. Um, well, she totally blew it on inflation, so I'm not sure how reassured I am for you know her saying that something's not going to happen because she was dead wrong on inflation, given how bad inflation is and how the Fed might have to respond, doesn't the current situation make it harder to avoid a recession? 20 seconds, Charles. It makes it harder, but her exact words is that she sees no evidence of it. There's a thing called the Beige Book, which is from the Federal Reserve, and it gives you a lowdown on how the country is doing. The one that came out in June 1st had the most mentions of recession in history. So I'm sure she has a copy of it. <laughs> Just pick up yeah, the beige book, Janet, please. Q1 contracted. Q1 contracted. That's one maybe little piece of evidence. I don't know. Charles Payne, Fox Business Network. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thanks for listening. So we have a culminating update on a story we have been loosely following all week, which is the embarrassing meltdown at The Washington Post. With these journalists attacking each other, one lead mean girl taking sort of the initiative and dragging her colleagues all over social media, being told to stop, memos being put out, emails being leaked, screenshots and everything. And one of the questions that I've been asking throughout all of this, because we were, I think, until yesterday, six or seven days into this. Like, I'm not sure if she was sleeping, eating, bathing. She was just tweeting. It was like a Steve Schmidt level meltdown, just like a breakdown 
in public where she was lashing out at a bunch of her colleagues. This is Felicia Sanmez is her name. And the question that I asked rhetorically or otherwise was, who's actually in charge of the Washington Post? Because they suspended without pay for a month the male journalist who retweeted a sexist joke. And he apologized. He took it down. That wasn't enough. She was beating the war drums until they finally knuckled under, suspended the guy for a month. And that wasn't enough. She was then going after people who were suggesting that her attacks were over the top, asking her politely to stop the public airing of dirty laundry. She brought race into it, trying to make this a racial thing as well. And it felt very much like the inmates, or at least the inmate, though she had some colleagues rallying to her side, including a guy, by the way, at the Washington Post, who was like on the bully team, who had written publicly about how he had an eating disorder that wouldn't allow him to take food at a buffet while he was in college, and he complained that the dining halls were biased against him and discriminating against people of his eating disorder because you had to serve yourself. I mean, just what are we doing in this country? Anyway, he was on Team Felicia. They were out there taking their shots at everyone. And at long last, this is the outcome to this, the adults in charge have asserted their authority a week into it. New York Times reporting on the Washington Post. Felicia Sanmez, reporter for the Washington Post, who in recent days has been at the center of a debate over the organization's social media policies and the culture of the newsroom, was fired on Thursday, according to three people with knowledge of the matter who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss personnel matters. She was fired over email. I actually thought it would have been more appropriate if she got fired over Twitter. Given what she'd been doing for the last week, just, you know, with the uh, the gasoline and the matches, could they just have, like, either DM'd her or just straight up, like, slid into her replies? By the way, you're fired. But no, they did it, I guess, more professionally by email. She was told that her employment was ended, effective immediately, quote, for misconduct, that includes insubordination, maligning your coworkers online, and violating the post standards on workplace, collegiality, and inclusivity. And they said that some of the things that she said included questioning the motives of co-journalists, thus undermining the post's reputation. Quote, we cannot allow you to continue to work as a journalist representing the Washington Post. So she is out. Her internal Slack account was deactivated. But her Twitter feed is still live. But last I checked, she has not been tweeting at all, which is weird. She's been doing nothing but tweeting. It's like her full-time job was tweeting, like, trash-talking about her colleagues and her bosses and her employer, who she's also sued, by the way, on a separate matter. So the theory that emerged was that she was trying to get fired. She was pushing every button she could to get herself fired through this sort of self-immolation in public because it could help her lawsuit, which is related to some other claim of grievance against her employer. 
And maybe she thought that getting fired could make it look like they were retaliating against her so then she could get a big payout. I'm not sure how that's going to go for her because her conduct was literally public for everyone to see day after day after day. So I don't know how these things work, but I feel like the Washington Post's hand was probably strengthened as they go through this litigation, if that's what happens. But maybe that was the plan. Make millions and walk off into the sunset with a bunch of money. Maybe she just lit her career on fire. I mean, everyone and their mother has already made the buy Felicia joke. But boy, did she earn this one. I don't know what comes next for her. I mean, she made her bed. And now she'll lie in it. Maybe it'll be a bed made of money and maybe not so much. Because if she wants to continue in this realm, if she wants to continue as a journalist, the question obviously becomes what organization in their right mind would hire her? I mean, the way that she treated her colleagues, her superiors, and the institution itself. It was like a giant anti-resume. It's like you could apply for a job and then they just... Search your Twitter history or just Google, because this has been a huge, raging national story because the media loves talking about itself. It's like, oh, you know what? This might be a not a culture fit here at fill in the blank. Given that she burned the last place down to the ground or at least tried to. And so it would appear the sad saga of Sweet Felicia is over and the Washington Post can move on to. It's regularly scheduled bias. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Much to get to. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Halfway through the show on this Friday from the campus of Hofstra University on Long Island in New York. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, back to a topic that we've been on a lot in the last few weeks for obvious reasons, the Uvalde shooting. A couple developments, including an interview given by the embattled district police chief who's getting a lot of heat and criticism, I think, for good reason. And then an expose published yesterday by the New York Times, which suggests kind of a worst-case scenario was true. Shouldn't be shocking, given what happened, given the loss of life, given the changing story that was altered, felt like about a dozen times, the so-called official record. So what does this person have to say for himself Here is the headline from Insider. Uvalde's school district police chief said he intentionally left his radios behind when responding to the mass shooting because he thought they would slow him down. I'm almost speechless. Your radio equipment as a law enforcement officer, I'm not an expert, but you know enough to say this. Your connection to dispatch your connection to the entire network of people who will be informing you of what's happening, that's your radio. And this guy is saying he made a decision, a call, 
to leave the radio behind because it might slow him down and also could interfere with his accuracy shooting. So the excuse is because he didn't have the radio on him, he didn't know that there were kids still alive in that room with that killer. Now, we'll come to the New York Times story in a second, which contradicts that. But let's take it on its face for what it is, his excuse. He says he ditched the radio intentionally because it would slow him down and perhaps make him less of an accurate shooter. Well, how'd that work out? He stood there for an hour. He was right there for an hour. Being slowed down wasn't the problem. Everything else was. And based on everything that we know about the kill eventually of the gunman, that wasn't him either. So his shooting accuracy was not really relevant to the way this thing finally unfolded after a scandalous amount of time passed. So that is the latest explanation from him, although, as we've said multiple times, he hasn't been that forthcoming. He hasn't been that available for interviews. Now he's given one, and maybe I'm understanding why he shied away from microphones and cameras, because if this is what he's got, how is that acceptable? Now, I've gotten a few notes from some listeners saying, You're too hard on the police. Stop attacking the cops. If you listen to this show with any regularity, you know that we are very profoundly pro-law enforcement on this show. And the nasty attacks against law enforcement, criminal attacks, rhetorical political attacks, etc., that's not what we do here. Authorities, law enforcement officers, they have to make bang, bang, life and death calls. And all the second guessing that always goes into it after the fact by a bunch of Monday morning quarterbacks, that is very demoralizing. That is very frustrating. And I think that that campaign of demonization has actually contributed to the crime wave that we're seeing in a lot of places. Where the police have been defanged, where they don't feel like the powers that be have their back. That's dangerous. Now, that being said, that also doesn't mean that police are infallible and that we must reflexively defend them at every turn, no matter what they do. That's not honest. I would not be doing my job and I would not be telling the truth if I look at the facts of what happened in Uvalde and said, well, back the blue, we can't say anything bad because they're police. When you have lives on the line, when you have children's lives on the line, and terrible decisions and failures result time after time after time, And in this case, it wasn't really a split-second decision. It was an agonizing, almost eternity. We have every right, and in fact, I would say responsibility, to ask questions and offer criticism. Which brings us to the aforementioned New York Times story. Headline, aware of injuries inside, Uvalde police waited to confront gunmen. Subhead is this. More than a dozen students remained alive for over an hour before officers entered the classrooms. The commander feared a risk to officers' lives. New documents show. Some of this is not new news. Some of it is. 
Heavily armed officers delayed confronting a gunman in Uvalde, Texas, for more than an hour, even though supervisors at the scene had been told that some trapped with him in two elementary school classrooms needed medical treatment. A new review of video footage and other investigative material shows. Let me repeat the key words in that sentence. Even though supervisors at the scene had been told that some trapped with him needed medical treatment. So whether or not this guy left his radio equipment behind or whatever decision was made based on the video, based on the analysis, based on the investigation of what's happening. People in charge on the ground with those, what, more than a dozen officers right outside the room, all standing there looking at each other, what should we do for the better part of an hour? Some of them knew that there were people in desperate, urgent need of medical attention, and they still did nothing, minute after minute after minute. Instead, back to the Times story, the documents show, they waited for protective equipment to lower the risk to law enforcement officers. Now, look, it is human nature to want to protect yourself and not get shot. I'm not going to cast aspersions at anyone who's not eager to go bust into a room with a psycho killer on the other side of the door. But with lives on the line, including young kids, and you've sworn a duty to protect and serve, that's the job. And it wasn't a matter of waiting a few minutes. And even that would be, I think, controversial and debatable. Wait four more minutes, the tactical gear is coming in, the shields or whatever. We've talked about it many times over. From the moment that the shooter arrived at the school to the moment he was killed, it was well over an hour. Police were on the scene for over an hour. The Times reports the school district police chief, who was leading the response to the May 24th shooting, appeared to be agonizing over the length of time it was taking to secure the shields that would help protect officers when they entered and to find a key for the classroom doors. That's the other thing. You're telling me it took an hour to find the key, find a custodian with the master key? I can understand agonizing. Think about the parents. What do you think they were doing outside? They were agonizing. They were begging. You've seen the video. You've heard the audio. Begging the police, give us your guns. Give us whatever you've got. We'll go in. And the police were arresting and detaining the parents as they stood around waiting with the guy apparently in charge saying he didn't have his radio by design, even though here we have the Times reporting that based on the evidence, they knew there were kids alive in there. Scandal on top of scandal on top of scandal. And then when they've been criticized by some of the parents who had kids in the school, even kids who died, the woman who spoke out to CBS News, who was detained for a while and then was able to talk her way out of cuffs and then sprinted to the school and got her kids out, she said that the local police were threatening her. You keep talking, there's going to be legal problems for you. Scandal on top of scandal on top of scandal. Whether it's the Texas DPS or the feds, we need the full story. How this guy still has the job, how this guy still has his badge, he just got elected a few months ago. Can you imagine presiding over this disaster and this loss of life 
and the terrible decisions made, and I'm sure they're going to haunt him. I don't hate this person, but how can you maintain your position as police chief of the district when the most important day of your whole career was a catastrophic failure because of you? And how do you not have any shame about then taking office as a local politician? How can you possibly serve that community? I don't get that. More than a dozen of the 33 children and three teachers originally in the two classrooms remained alive during the one hour and 17 minutes from the time the shooting began inside the classrooms to when four officers made entry. And those were the Border Patrol people, the feds, who were finally sick of being told to stop. By that time, an hour and 17 minutes in, 60 officers had assembled on scene. 6-0. People are going to ask why we're taking so long. A man who investigators believe to be Chief Arredondo, this guy, could be heard saying, we're trying to preserve the rest of the life. Really? Because if there are kids or people dying or bleeding out on the other side of the door, and you're waiting forever by the way the stuff i guess never really came at the moment never arrived finally again based on the story we've been told for what it's worth i have my doubts finally the border patrol little group said we're going in people are going to ask why we're taking so long yeah it's not like they might in the future they were outside the school these desperate terrified parents were asking those very questions, and volunteering themselves, their own bodies, let us go in. I'm not saying that would have been the right thing to do, but that, I think, speaks to the desperation and the shocking amount of time it took for the police to act. Here's a key paragraph in the story. Investigators have been working to determine whether any of those who died could have been saved if they had received medical attention sooner, according to an official with knowledge of the effort. There is no question that some of the victims were still alive and in desperate need of medical attention. One teacher died in an ambulance. Three children died at nearby hospitals, according to the documents. One of them was 10 years old, Javier Lopez. After finally getting, and the quote here is, rushed to the hospital. I don't know if you can use the word rush. Once he was finally in the ambulance, then fine. I'm sure they rushed him to the hospital. What about all the minutes that dragged by while he was bleeding? I'm not a medical expert. I don't have access to any of this stuff. I'm just reading to you from the New York Times story. Three kids and one teacher were not dead when finally that room was breached. They were still alive. Wounded badly, turns out fatally. But they'd been lying there for the better part of an hour. Whether all four of them would have survived, I don't know. You don't know. God only knows, literally. Whether that teacher who succumbed in the ambulance, any of those three kids who passed away at the hospital, maybe none of them would have survived. Do you want to guess maybe one of them might have made it, too? Three, all four, we'll never know. We'll never know because of the inaction. They were lying there dying. And dozens of people with badges and guns 
were all over the place and just waited around until finally, an hour and 17 minutes after the shooting began, action was taken. It was too late for 21 people, at least four of whom, conceivably, based on what we know, if they had been treated sooner, if they had stopped the bleeding sooner, the number could be different. The death toll could be lower. It's not Monday morning quarterbacking or second guessing to make these points. And the key takeaway from the story is not just that these four people died after they were finally sent to hospitals, one of them on the way to the hospital, but that some of the officers in charge, apparently including Mr. Arredondo, knew. They knew that there were kids alive in the room. Remember, they were calling. There were 911 calls. Oh, he didn't know about the 911 calls, he says, because he left his radio at home on purpose. But this New York Times story says that they knew which makes an already horrible story somehow worse. Is this what I want to be talking about and talking to all of you about on a Friday, a beautiful day out, getting ready for the weekend? No, this is a real downer. But it's a huge national story. It's terrible what happened. And unless we're demanding answers as a country, as a people, I think there's plenty of folks responsible who would love for these questions to go away. I just don't think that's acceptable which is why we're still on it. We'll break. We'll come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We continue on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Thanks for being here. Saw the story in Axios and turned my stomach. Chinese students at Cornell taunt Uyghur classmate during event. This is kind of surreal. A group of Chinese international students at Cornell University, Ivy League school, booed and left an event last week in protest of a Uyghur student who spoke about her brother's detention amid the Chinese government's genocide in Xinjiang. There was an event featuring Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, a Democrat from Michigan at Cornell, and she was talking about oppressed people. And one of the students there, who's a Uyghur, got up to ask a question, explained that her brother had been arrested in 2017 as part of mass detentions by Chinese Communist Party authorities, and that she'd been unable to speak to her own brother since then. That was five years ago. Quote, there was audible booing and jeering going on from the Chinese students partway through her question. And during the answer to the question, they got up and walked out of the room. Multiple people present at the event said the Chinese students involved jeering, taunting, snickering, and booing, and then they walked out, 40 of them. This girl said she didn't feel safe, she felt numb, and has felt totally unsupported by the university. So my question is this, whether it's Cornell or some of these other schools, should we in America be educating at our elite institutions Chinese nationals who are willing to attack and mock and intimidate another ethnic minority sharing details about the genocide being committed by their government back home. I'm all for inclusion, welcoming people from all over the world to our universities. If this is what you're going to do, if you're going to come to the United States and engage in bullying on behalf of your communist regime to try to shut down the speech or attack someone talking about vast human rights abuses 
taking place back in your home country. I'm not sure that's what we should be doing in this country. What are we doing here? And by the way, they know us so well. They've understood how our system works. They report criticisms of communist China as racist, as a shield for themselves. So they play the woke games to protect the CCP, which is very clever. I just wish we weren't such an easy mark. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up from Hofstra University in New York. Stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday. Glad to have you all here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast is free every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious, refreshing, especially as the weather gets hot. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website. They're now in 40 states. They're really expanding nationally. It's delicious. Now, it's alcoholic, so 21-plus only. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. And here with me from the campus of Hofstra University in Long Island, New York, is Jimmy Fela, host of Fox Across America. What are you doing here, Jimmy? Hey, hey, hey. Are you stalking me? Well, you know what? We're having the talkers convention here today. Yes, and as sir. a Nassau community graduate, this is the only way I could get into Hofstra. So it, this has been 44 years in the making, this moment. I've tried in the past. I've been met by security at the gates. This is my first time consensually on campus it's a big deal they've taken your photo off like uh, it's gone the guard tower like do not let this man in <laughs> it's just a vague description basically involving sports coats if it's a very loud sports coat don't let him in this is describe this for us well the, the god's honest truth is i do dress like i'm in a liberace cover band you know there's a little bit of that going on mm-hmm. but what i love about the way i dress is when i go on the road people can't tell if i'm fox news talent or i'm selling drugs to fox news talent the answer is obviously both but um i basically use fashion as a conversational accessory because people would be like, that's an interesting coat. What's which, going on? Which of our colleagues are you selling drugs to? Because my, oh, my a... dealer is Judge Janine, obviously. Because <laughs> right? she can't lock you up. Yeah, she's got to hook you up. You're, you're doing it right. What do you think she was doing when she was driving so fast? So yeah. I was like, where's my stuff, Judge? That's, well, I go, I, that's why I roll with Emily Campagno. She's a lawyer. Uh-huh. And she's a former Oakland Raiders cheerleader, which means not only she can acquit me, but she can help me acquire. You need someone who can acquire and acquit, and that's Emily Campagno. And if you get pulled over by the cop, she can, like, bat her eye. Can she, Eyelashes can and she just ever. turn on the charm. Can she ever? She's delightful. She's a good egg, Emily. Um, we are absolutely going to get fired. Here no, we are joking about our colleagues. No, they love it, though. They're all fun. They'd ra- I mean, th- listen, there, there was another era where people were doing much worse about their colleagues in terms of discussing them. You know, me and you are actually, this is the Olive Garden when you hear your family. <laughs> we're talking about who's wonderful. If you want to do a, a segment called Who Sucks, but yeah, we should probably tape that. It's going to be the after show? Yeah, we're going to need some editing for that. Yeah. <laughs> some heavy editing. We were... Heading over to get sandwiches earlier before the luncheon here because we wanted to schmooze and chat with everyone at this convention. It's a talk radio convention here in Long Island. And on our drive over to the sandwich shop, Jersey Mike's, Mike's. we actually had the CEO on the show here. So I had never had Jersey Mike's before. I am from New Jersey. 
and never what a sellout. Well, I think when you're from New Jersey, you go to the local deli. But I know what you mean because I'm from Levittown down the block, and I've never smoked meth before. <laughs> People are like, are you sure you're from Levittown? So I dig it. I get it. Today was your first time. <laughs> you know, it's talkers. <laughs> so uh, you told a story on the drive over that blew me away. Oh. I was waiting for the dollar amount on this story, and then <laughs> I, I don't even know what I was expecting, but not that. So you were, can I use the word degenerate, a degenerate gambler? I was, in all honesty, I was a, in my youth, in my 20s, I was a problem gambler, but not the kind who went to meetings. You know what I mean? The problem was, you know, sometimes I'd run out of money. I had to get resourceful. You know, powder the Adam's apple, throw in a blonde wig, whatever you got to do. It's a long season. Nobody goes undefeated. But the point is I was betting aggressively. And I didn't always have the money. No, no, hang on. I was so, good at it. Now I'm intrigued by this. You say you were a, <laughs> a problem gambler, uh-huh. but not the one who would have to go to meetings. Should you have gone to meetings and you just didn't? No. You want to know how I cured my – because I loved the action of gambling because I grew up in a big gambling house. No, I, I think that's the problem, yeah. right? <laughs> People don't get addicted because they hate it. They like – They like the, the act. They like the act. The action and the drama. Which is why people lose gambling. It's because over the course of time, it's inevitability that the house catches up to you. You know the old adage, the house always wins. They always win because you always stay. Like if you go to a commuter casino, say Atlantic City, you sit down within a minute of getting there, you might win three grand. But the first thing you say to your buddy is like, we just got here. You know, because your buddy's like, we should leave. But you're like, but we just got here. We just ordered drinks. So you stick around. And you want the, the luck time, to keep playing yeah, out and, and then but, it, it doesn't. Yeah. But, it, but also, again, you've kind of because you're just commuting for the day, it doesn't make sense that you were all geared up for this fun trip to just end it five minutes after you got there. So it starts off with you up three grand. It ends with you turning tricks on the Atlantic City boardwalk, as I said. I'm not bragging, but, you know, the rent don't pay itself. I believe this is the second or third time you have referenced prostituting yourself. I'm being silly. I'm being on my silly. show. Not just today. You've, it's like a – it's a bit. I wink. Will, oh, I was going to say, yeah, I might have been soliciting. It depends where we were talking about this. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but no, like you know this guy, Benson, and for anyone here at WRHU uh, who is filling out an HR complaint right now. Uh, I don't In take advance. My, yeah. I don't, if I ever work at Fox News, I'm preemptively suing this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why you're not getting hired. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I just don't take myself Retaliation. Seriously. That's Anything. another one. That's Put another that one. in the lawsuit. No, the God's honest truth is I was as a young kid, I was a big gambler. I liked to bet sports. I liked to bet cards. And I believe the story you're referencing yes. was I really did once bet. I'm not kidding. I bet $50,000 on an Ohio State game. But when I won it. what <laughs> What is wrong with you? Like, how does that even, first of all. As a Northwestern guy, I, I can't support your, your yeah, you rooting know, for Ohio State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Big Ten thing. Mm-hmm. It's usually smart to bet on Ohio State. Mm-hmm. They're playing Indiana, so that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> but still, 50 grand, what goes through your brain? This to is say, a- you know what? Because you were not exactly mm-hmm. super rich at the time. Is yeah, that yeah, fair no, to not say? not at all. What if that bet had gone wrong for you? Well, like, um, oh, no, it would have been a problem. So the, the premise well, yeah. was I was going to the, the Horseshoe in Columbus to meet Jenny's family for the first time. So the deal was I loved this girl. I knew I was going to marry the girl at the time at the game. She really wanted to impress her family. No, they didn't know. They had no idea. They're like, wow, he's a really big Buckeye fan, this guy. He's He's really into the game. He's sweating. He's crying. This guy's pacing. It's like his first game. This is weird. But no, Jenny knew we had all this money bet, and the deal was if we lose, we're going to get married and raise our kids in Ohio. If we win, we're going to buy a house and move back to Levittown. That's what we did. Was she rooting for Indiana? <laughs> no, she actually wanted she wanted the Buckeyes to win. But uh, the thing is, when you're that kind of a gambler, money is not – it doesn't actually cross your mind. You don't care. You're there for the action. You're there for the pursuit. But couldn't you do that for 
a thousand dollars. Well, I clearly had. That's the point. Like you it don't just know, kept you know going. in comedy they say you don't open with your closer. You don't bet fifty grand your first time you're betting. You know what I mean? You bet fifty bucks. You know what I mean? But Th- this the, is my problem. But I, the answer to the question, I open the segment with my Judge yeah. Janine joke, uh-huh. and I've got nothing yeah. left. Well, here's the deal. This is the answer to the most often asked question people ever ask of me, which is, how did you become a cab driver? That's how you get into the habit of betting that kind of money. Yeah, knock up a woman without health insurance. The next thing you know, you're in the cab line at LaGuardia, hoping to pick up a fare back to the city. Mm. It's like looking at, at my own life, Jimmy. It's like, <laughs> it's like looking in a mirror. Now, so you win. Yes. The Buckeyes win. Mm. And then didn't you, like, double down we on did. an NFL game? I'm not proud about this. All right, so go but on. the 0-4 Kansas City Chiefs were five-and-a-half-point favorites against the 4-0 and Atlanta Falcons, the Michael Vick-led Atlanta Falcons, going into Arrowhead and being someone who can read a casino line. You didn't ever do any Michael Vick betting, did you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. As a cab driver, I could find you some locations, you know, but you no, I was never involved. hop in the back of a cab, take me to a dogfight. Yeah, and I'd have you there in like You're six like, minutes. You're like, I got you. Oh, too. I'm like, do you want a Dalmatian or do you want a uh... – <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> I'm like, you... is there a specific breed you'd like to wager on? But no, uh, we – the next day we went to the Fox and the Hound in Cleveland, hey girl, and uh, we bet the Chiefs. We doubled down on the Chiefs, beat the Falcons, and then we came back to Levittown and bought a Levitt cape back in the day. So, started. the moral of the story is mm-hmm. make wildly reckless bets and then <laughs> no. buy a house. No, it doesn't end that way for anybody. That, well, we, except for you. That's and- an anomaly, but that's an anomaly. Like, I really did, after all, over the course of time, the reason I outgrew gambling. You know, I was telling you I wasn't like a meetings gambler is because up until that point in my life, OK, I never had a bill or a responsibility. I was young. My parents were married 30 years when they got divorced. You know, I was just starting to do stand up and I was living with my mom because my mom was a little beat up at the time. She's fine now. Um, but we were uh, hanging out at my mom's house. And, you know, basically when I wasn't doing stand up on the road, I was at my mom's. And because I never bought anything like a tangible asset, gambling to me made sense because it was like, well, if this is five thousand dollars, if I give it to the casino, it might be 80. You know, if I just leave it in the bank, it's just bored, you know. So it wasn't until I bought a house and started, like, buying furniture and stuff and was like, wow, if I give you this, I can just sit on this couch. This is my couch. And the woman at Levitt's was like, yeah, no, you own it. And I was like, that blows my mind. And I just stopped gambling after that. It's weird. You discovered the concept of ownership in your 20s. Thank you. Yeah, that's what it was. Got it. And it just kind of leveled me up. I am so stressed viscerally just <laughs> listening to this. In retrospect, knowing that you've turned out relatively fine. It's presentable. Yeah. I'm still so scared <laughs> on your behalf. Uh, now, let's talk about another money-related issue. Mm. Did you see this poll where they asked the American people, if you won the lottery, uh-huh. what would you do in terms of sharing mm-hmm. that information with anyone? 83% of Americans said they would not tell anyone, including their own family. That they had won the lotto. Now, my take on this is I think that's the right call. Uh I think you hear about all these horror stories where people win the lottery and then things go south for them because all these hangers on show up. And Mm -hmm. there's, you know, money can mess with people and things get ugly. So you keep that private. You don't tell anyone. I think in theory that's a good call. I just don't know who has the willpower. Yeah. To win millions of dollars and tell nobody? I know. That, seem, that seems like a stretch to me. It, I mean, it depends what you won. Like, if I won $2 million right now, obviously I'd spend 80% of it on a tank of gas. Um, <laughs> but, if, but no, really what I, what I would do, and I think most people would do, is they'd cash in the ticket. Because I think that's the real mistrust, is they're afraid of losing the ticket. Then you don't get the jackpot. Or somebody takes it from you, you get mugged or whatever. I would imagine, like, the window between winning and actually oh, getting paid I would say, has got to be intense. I would say nothing until Not, I actually I mean, yeah. had the money. Now, would you do the annuity or the lump sum? 
Uh, probably better for me to do the annuity because, as you've heard, I'm not great with stimulation. <laughs> like, if I do the lump sum, I'm like, hey, can you throw in a headstone while you're at it? I'm going to get killed in like an hour and a half. You would look at this jacket, guy. I was I'm say, a troubled man. You blow, okay? you blow half of it fun, on a wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. This is very floral. Thank you. I asked you to describe it because it's radio, and you didn't. So I'll just do it it's for the for folks the at home. White jacket, grayish black florals. Mm-hmm. I, I look like a stripper who let himself go during the lockdown. You know what I mean? Like, I look like an affordable stripper, like a tragic Mike. No, people, Not like a magic Mike. It wouldn't be like Channing Mike. Tatum. Yeah, yeah. People throw dollar bills at you to just stay a little bit farther away. It's not that. No, they give it to me for a gym membership. They're like, here you go. A little dance and a little <laughs> treadmill. And that's fine. You got to own it. It's like you're saving up for a Peloton. <laughs> what your handle would be on Peloton. So let's say you safely have the money, though. Mm-hmm. You've won the lottery. Money's in your bank account. I think that's when the problems start. Because all of a sudden, people start looking at you a different way. Yep. And because they also feel like you haven't really earned your money, uh-huh. that it isn't really totally fairly yours. And so they, they might be more shameless about wanting a cut or asking for stuff. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're just like a bank <laughs> for your family, for your friend group. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of gets very messy, which is why I think, again, the 83% are correct Theoretically, I just don't believe that almost any of them could go through with keeping it secret. Yeah, and you know what I blame? You tell someone, Mm -hmm. and then it goes. Yeah, that's the thing. It blows up. No one's keeping a $5 million secret. You know what I mean? And that's when it spirals out of control. I think the lesson here is if, like, you're a sports fan or you're a rap fan, everybody you know that makes it big as a rapper or a baller has a massive entourage, and they go broke so quick. And I think that's what everybody who wins the lottery is wary of. It's like, I could become feel-good entourage guy, but how sustainable is it? So, you know how the NFL has actually implemented yeah. courses, yeah, classes? Yeah, financial courses, yeah, yeah. They should do that for lotto winners. Oh, yeah, because most of them do bottom out, get killed, do, you know, for real. That, right. That is true. Yeah, most people, financial literacy, if you really wanted to help the world, we should be teaching that in school. You know what we should be teaching that? Congress. Could you imagine if Congress knew how to balance a checkbook? We'd have a chance. Congress is about to bet 50000 on the Kansas City Chiefs over the Atlanta Falcons. No, but we're not doing that in schools. We're doing, no, no. We're doing pronouns. <laughs> right? so that's so true. That's the way society is going. Yeah. One more thing before we take a quick break and come back and talk about food. Mm-hmm. Did you hear this story out of Chicago, my mm-hmm. former hometown, for a bit, where this woman went to a house that she worked very hard to buy, shows up at the house, there's a squatter. Mm-hmm. The squatter has come up with a whole elaborate lie that they belong there. This woman called the police. The cops can't do anything. And there is a protracted legal battle that's going to take potentially years and all these lawyer fees just for her to get control of her own house back. What would you do if the house that you bought with all of your gambling money, (laughs) you come back to it one day and there's someone who doesn't belong there? Do you try to like joke with them till they leave? Do you hire someone like you you got a guy? You burn it down. Yeah, you burn. you burn the house down. Yeah, you burn a house down. You collect homeowners. They're out. You start from scratch. I mean, that's the move. If we were really, I'm talking is like that, a scorched is that situation. Not felony murder, though. Just hear me out. No, I don't want to kill them. No, you don't kill them. I would imagine you should have set the fire. Leave. Like, uh oh, there's a fire. You better leave. Yeah, no, I think they'd know there was a fire. I don't do think you do like a middle of the night fire. Okay, so this is less murderous than it sounded like. That is good, Jimmy. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get to meats, a different kind of meat, on the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday with us. Jimmy Fallon, our friend and colleague, 
I have to call him that. It's in my contract. <laughs> Fox Across America, host Fox News Radio, and we are both selling meats. Are we ever? You, you were talking about selling other meats in the last segment. Yes. But this is delicious Omaha steaks. And you know, you're like chomping at the bit to say something. It's the funniest thing because they were like, do you, do you want to uh, do an unboxing video for Omaha? I'm like, dude, I just ate half of the box. I'm sorry. Was I supposed to open it and film it? I had no I ate the box before it even like I even knew it like, was Like, sir, you're supposed sponsor. to cook this. Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> I ate it raw. Um, yeah, there's never been a more like, you know, symbiotic relationship between a host and, you know, a product. Like, I look like I'm... It, People just assume it's my salary that I get paid in, like, bacon-wrapped filet mignon. <laughs> but you've heard my show. It would be the burgers. They wouldn't give me the bacon. You'd get the bacon-wrapped filet. Um, I'm a little lower class. But, it, no, it's Omaha Steaks. And I really do mean this because I was driving a cab for so long. Uh, I always went to houses that had them that were outrageous. They were my aspiration in, like, my early 30s. And now you've got a show and where you're selling them. I mean, really, it is. It's inspiring. I don't know if it is to anybody else. You're like, that's all you wanted in life was a steak. But yes, that is what I wanted. I in want life. to start chanting USA. Yeah, actually, the dream, the dream has People come People are true. crying in the studio. Yeah, I'm singing <laughs> One Moment in Time by Whitney Houston when I opened up the box. It was a big deal. So I, I actually like legitimately love Omaha steaks. And um, I know how to cook them. This is my issue. Because the product itself is such a good product. If you know how to cook a steak, it ruins steakhouses for you, which is good because if you're listening at home, it's going to save you a bazillion dollars. Right, because if you act now, yeah. <laughs> ahead of Father's Day, for the next couple of days, you go to omahasteaks.com, keyword Guy Benson, all one word, G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N, $99, mm-hmm. 16 entrees, four desserts, including bacon wrap oh, fillets. So sexy. Guy like Benson you can is read the that to me for three ninety nine a minute, and I just listen to it. And like, oh, girl, keep going. Daddy's working late tonight. <laughs> Take the phone off the hook. And it is a Father's Day promotion. Oh, Speaking of daddy, daddy's big day. <laughs> You've made this creepy. Somehow. I know. I love it though. It's fun. Ninety nine dollars. Um, ninety nine. It's the best ninety nine dollars you'll ever spend, and I just mean this. Uh, you'll love it because of the quality of the food, but there's a second level of this. Learn how to cook this food. Because you're starting with a base product that's incredible. Right. So if you learn how to cook a good dish. Well, it's a disservice to screw it up. Yeah, that's all. Well, of course it is. You've got to show some respect. But the point is, if you really want to be a show-stopping chef, you only need to know how to cook, like, two things. It's not like, you, you know what I mean? If you have, like, two or three standards in your repertoire, like, I can make a vicious world-class steak. It blows people away. And you don't, you know, they don't need to know that you can't boil a hot dog. You know, you you can be very limited in the kitchen, but if you know two or three things that you've mastered, you get a lot of street cred. So this is your opportunity. OmahaSteaks.com, keyword Guy Benson, all one word, ahead of Father's Day, 99 bucks is a great deal. Jimmy, great to see you in person here on campus. Uh huh. It was an honor to be a part of the final Fox News broadcast at Hofstra. (laughs) It means a lot to me. It means a lot. (laughs) We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Earlier in the program today, we caught up with Brian Kemp, Republican governor of Georgia, fresh off of his thumping primary victory down there. What's next? Looking ahead to the general. Here's part of that conversation with Governor Kemp. Number one, congratulations on being renominated. Number two, holy cow, the margin. 52 points, was it? I mean, were your internal polls showing anywhere close to that? Because that's a whopping number. 
Well, thanks, Kyle. Look, we're very excited. I mean, we just kept our head down every day, worked hard every day, tried to win every day. And, you know, our internals were good, but I, I think a lot of people underestimated the ground game that we had. I mean, we were obviously raising a lot of money and doing all the things that we need to do on a direct advertising front, but we also had a very robust ground game, and we need to have that. You know, we're going to have to have that to beat Stacey Abrams. We're going to have to raise a tremendous amount of money. As you know, she was in Hollywood or somewhere out in California with a bunch of movie stars yesterday or today or something raising money. And, you know, we're going to have to continue to work work hard and grind it out, uh, not only on the airwaves, but also just door-to-door and voter-to-voter and getting our folks registered. I believe if we do that, we're going to have a great night November 8th in 2022. You said she's out there fundraising in California. I'm not surprised that she would be fundraising out of state because she said out loud that your state, Georgia, the state that she wants to run, and that I guess in her own mind she is sort of the incumbent, uh, even though she's not, but she said Georgia is the worst state in the country in which to live. You must have done a double take when you saw that quote from her. I mean, that is quite something. That's quite a soundbite for her to pop off about since she wants to lead the state. Uh, it's just it's incredible. I think it just makes a lot of people, quite honestly, guy, just shake their head. But she said a lot of a lot of really interesting things. You know, she criticized me when we reopened our economy. She criticized me when I kept it open on the the second wave and you know, she criticized me when we pushed to get her kids back in school, and she criticized me when we didn't have mandates on masks and vaccines, and then she didn't abide by those herself. And, you know, I think people really think Stacey's just gotten very hypocritical. Uh, she's not worried about her state. She's more worried about being in Hollywood, New York, selling her book over the last couple of years. But, you know, Marty and the girls and I, we the greatest state in the country to live, work, and raise our families, and we're grinding away every day doing what we told people we would do. You know, we're doing that as we speak, sending a billion dollars back to the taxpayers. We've suspended the gas tax, trying to help people fight through this 40-year high Biden inflation. And quite honestly, you know, President Biden credited Stacey Abrams for him getting elected, and she's taking that credit. And it's their policies uh, that really have turned our country upside down, and we cannot allow that to happen in Georgia. Yeah, and you were talking about some of the hypocrisy from Stacey Abrams. There was that famous photograph with her sitting in a classroom filled with kids, big smile on her face for this picture. Every child all around her wearing masks required to do so. She was not wearing a mask. That picture went everywhere. Did you see the video of her a couple days ago asking a younger girl to take her mask off for a photo because of the optics. I mean, I guess maybe she learned from that mistake, but it doesn't seem like the actual lesson was learned about the policy itself, about force masking of children. God knows what she might do wielding power if she gets it in November. It seems like maybe she's learned a little bit of the political optics lesson, but not the underlying fundamental important lesson on policy. Well, it's just more of the same. It's the same way, like, you know, as you know, I know you've been looking at the numbers in our primary. We had record turnout, record number of voters voting, almost like a presidential election in the gubernatorial year. And it wasn't just a Republican primary. The Democrats turned out in record number. And it was Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden that were saying a year ago, you know, the bill we passed to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat was going to suppress the vote. And it was Jim Crow 2.0 and and all these other things. And, you know, Abrams said, hey, she 
pressured Major League Baseball to move the game, and then she came out and said, no, don't move the game. Well, Georgians are tired <laughs> of that. They want consistent leaders. They want somebody that's going to be honest with them and put them first, which is, again, why we cut taxes again, which she criticized all those things. You know, she's criticizing us putting money back in the pockets of hardworking Georgians. She criticized when we suspended the gas tax. She didn't like the tax cut we did. You know, she said I'd never do the largest teacher pay raise in state history, and we've done that. And I think people realize that. They realize who's been fighting for them every day and who's been worried about themselves, and that's what we got to continue to do. I'm glad that you brought up the voter suppression issue. I was going to raise it myself, and I want to stay there just for a moment because this is not just like a minor thing. You had the entire power of the Democratic Party, the bully pulpit of the president of the United States, supported, of course, by your opponent, Stacey Abrams, much of the media, a shameful percentage, in my view, of corporate America, all repeating and amplifying huge lies about what the Georgia law would do on election reform. And they went for the jugular. They said it was racist. President Biden said it was worse than Jim Crow, which is just an astounding, insulting thing and misappropriation of history uh, to say that type of thing. But he did. Abrams has been a cheerleader on this issue. It's her signature issue, fear-mongering about so-called voter suppression. This is about being, you know, the modern-day equivalent of Jefferson Davis and Bull Connor and George Wallace all rolled into one. These are the things that they said over and over again. And Major League Baseball pulled out the all-star game based on these lies. And here we have the first test in the real world of that whole litany of untruths or at least the allegations, you know, would it prove out to be correct? The first test, the first opportunity for voter so-called suppression to take place was in this primary cycle in your state and between the last governor's cycle in 2018 and this one, increased turnout. It was up by three quarters of a million people across the board My full interview with Governor Kemp available online, GuyBensonShow.com, also on that free podcast, the whole show, every day, on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, we are here in this studio at Campus Radio Station. Since we're at a convention on Long Island at Hofstra, it's bringing back some memories for me, also for Cookie, who's here with me. We will stroll down memory lane, get sentimental together after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Friday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Happy almost weekend. Just a few minutes left together. Catch the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, including bonus Benson on the weekends. And we've been broadcasting today thanks to the very warm hospitality of WRHU here at Hofstra University. It's the student radio station, and I'm having some flashbacks to my college days. I was, fun fact, sports director at WNUR-FM in Evanston, Illinois. Actually, our top of the hour was WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago, your home for Wildcat Athletics on the sports side. So I was sports director, called Big Ten Football, men's and women's basketball. Gosh, what else? Baseball, softball, women's lacrosse. It was really fun. I also co-hosted 
a political talk show every Sunday night called Feedback, and it was right versus left. So I was interning at Hannity and Combs, and I was hosting, like, collegiate, low-budget Hannity and Combs on student radio, and it was fun. I mean, that was back, gosh, that was the 04 presidential cycle days. So Bush, Kerry, Iraq, all that. And sort of cut my teeth in talk radio as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, and here I am, much older, doing it for real. And it's kind of fun. And student radio is, I think to me, like one of my fondest memories of college. Some of my best friends that I still have from college are guys that I would go on these road trips to Ann Arbor or East Lansing or Columbus or wherever it was going to be, Iowa City, and call these games. And to be back on a campus at a college radio station, although, like, this is a very nice college radio station. Like, the board they have here <laughs> it is not reminiscent of what we had. Although my senior year, we made a shift from one building to another, so a brand-new studio, and it was really nice. But it was so nice you actually had sort of crotchety old seniors like me, like seniors in college. Don't, put, don't, put, don't say me and you. I see what's happening here. No, I'm not talking about senior citizens. I'm talking about seniors in college. <laughs> you walked right into that one. We're like, oh, we were so used to the old gritty college station mm. where it sort of had the grungy feel to it, which is what a station should be. But it was much nicer. I haven't been back to that station in a while. But here at WRHU, it's amazing, and they've been very kind to host us. Now, I, of course, was going to exploit the opportunity to talk about myself because <laughs> why not? Of course. My name is on the show. However, earlier today, I learned yet Another interesting fact about the other voice that you've been hearing here during the segment, producer Christine, you had a radio show in college. I sure did. Okay. What was the college? What was the station? I went to Mammoth University. Go Hawks. And I, well, I had started out doing television production. Wait, do you remember the name of the station? Or is it just like, I was going to say, was it online? But I don't think they had the internet when you were in college. Did you ever have Spice Reel to Reel, by the way? No. Never? No. That was like one of the first things they taught us in radio. Do you guys even know? No, not a clue. Okay. There's some students here just yeah. like bewildered looking I, I, at you. I don't remember. The, I should. Isn't what that is this bad? woman talking about? Splicing <laughs> Reel to Reel? So sad. But uh, I, did, uh, I did do a radio show. Not a lot of time on air, but I had a radio show. It was an 80s music, obviously. Yeah, that's very on brand. And it was called On Air with Big Hair. And I was your host. But as everybody knows in college, you're the host. You're the, you know, producer of your own show. It's a one-man band. Yes. And we've seen me with technology, right? Can you imagine me trying to run a show when Michael Jackson's playing? So I'm over here dancing, you know, going, and then all of a sudden I'm not hitting the buttons. And there's a problem. Yeah. So, okay, before we explore the problem. Mm. I think I just told you the problem. Yeah, but, and what happened? I got fired. You got fired. Yes. How, how soon into Big Hair did you get fired? I think On Air with Big Hair probably had about two or three shows. Shows? Yes. I was expecting months. No. Two to three months. No. Two or three shows. No. Because it would just be, what, dead air? Yes. And then I wouldn't know what to do over there. And Did anyone train you? Sure. Yeah, and you just, it went one <laughs> ear out the other, just gone. Yeah, there's training, I'm sure. They wouldn't just put me on there. But I was lucky because when you're, this is all... Kind of back in your days, I was graduating when 
2004. Yes, I graduated in 2004 at college. So I was already going to New York City. God bless Phil Boyce. He hired me at WABC right away. Mm -hmm. So that was my college. We bumped into him today. Yes. That was my college. I mean, I was done after they were going to fire me. I, it was a good show I was giving them. Was other it? Than the, the, was it? The dead air? Well, other than that, like, my banter was witty. Obviously, you know that. But who, with whom were you bantering? Myself. Oh. I could talk to myself. Totally. Multiple personalities going back and forth? Yeah, and just talking about, the, like, the music. Would you do your accents? No, that came later. That came later. That came later, mate. Ooh, that had been, like, Oy. one show. <laughs> And done. I probably got three or four. Three or four what? Shows? shows or yeah, I thought you said three or four accents. I'm like, I don't think so. Oh, I've got more than that. No, they all end up just being a pirate. Blimey. Yeah, it just ends up being a pirate. And then stop. <laughs> just stop. These students are going to leave. It is the last segment of the show. Thank I swear, God. kids, I'm a professional. Been at Fox for 17 years. Yes, this is someone to look up to and mm-hmm. aspire to be. Mm-hmm. Producer Christine, did you have big 80s hair? Back in the 80s, as a kid, yeah, I'd use that hair. Of course. That's what you did. I had the bangs that went, like, up, you know, like. What was Flock of Seagulls? That was, was... 80s, but. Like, what were they? Like, yeah, like, what is, is that? That was a hairstyle, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but too? that was a band. Flock of Seagulls was a band. And so people did, styled their did hair. after. Oh. Yeah. Seriously? Did not know that. See, I could have talked to you about that on On Air with Big Hair. So you would play a song. Yep. Forget to play the next song. Correct. Rush back to the microphone. Correct. And just start blurting Talking. out yep. whatever was on your mind. Whatever was on my mind and try to figure out how to get to that next song. So, for example, what were your topics? Do you have some? Do you have a rundown like you make for me every day? No. 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 no, I didn't need that. I could just talk. Do you have any Mama's Juice with you on the air? Uh, no, no, no. Mama's Juice came much later. Two buck chuck. Mama's Juice literally came when I became a mother. Everybody always says you start drinking so much more at, when you become a mom. And it's true. Really? Yeah, As a coping mechanism? Yes. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think you're – nope, it's – nope, she said it. And <laughs> your initial answer, I think, is probably the truth, right? Mm-hmm. You, yes. And then you think about it for half a second. No, no. I love my daughter. She's, she's a blessing. Angel. Oh, she seems like a very easy kid. Yeah. Yes. I'm the problem. I mean, that's, again, there's a lot of truth serum happening apparently here at WRHU. She's just letting it all spill. Mm. I wonder, would they let you, given the endorsement you've just given, would they let you do an hour of 80s music here? I don't know. Can I run the board? <laughs> no, she, she looks terrified. She's, you know what? I'm going to have, Dan, Dan, I'm going to have him teach me, and I'm going to start running the board for you. I want to learn it. Mm. I can call, I can yell at people while I'm call screening, run the board, talk to you, book, however, run around getting yes. You shouldn't give them any ideas. Them being management. They'll be like, oh, yeah, we'll just have her do everything. <laughs> That's true. I'll be doing all the shows. <laughs> and also, we need an engineer who is a professional. And it's not, as we've established here, not your forte. And things have only gotten more advanced since your time, <sighs> right? So I, I think there'd be I a— I couldn't even figure out a hotspot on my phone. I know. Didn't there, even know. There'd be a dramatic learning curve, mm-hmm. I think. So I think you can stay in your role here. Yes. What is that again? It changes from day to day. Mm. But I think it's, what was it, chief happiness officer? Yes. Court jester. Yes. And executive producer. And over-the-road truck driver. Speaking of driving, and we're almost out of time, we actually took a car service out to this convention today. We're going to head back after the show as well. You were threatening to drive us. I think that it would have been so much fun. I was actually going to put a GoPro in there, and I was going to pull up to Fox News, 
windows up, uh, down, Phil Collins blasting, and be like, get in, loser. We're going. We're going to talkers. <laughs> you could have done on air with big hair. Yes. Just in person with me. Wyatt had begged. Quiet Wyatt. War Wyatt. He wanted to take a break from war. And he wanted to have this as a segment just so we would have something to talk about. Yeah, that's because he wouldn't have to be in the car. Mm. He wanted this to happen to me. Yeah. He didn't want to be a part of it. And you know what they say about my driving? I don't know what they say. They say I have a heavy foot. Mm -hmm. Do you know what well, that means? I, yeah, I do. I'm not completely <laughs> stupid. I have, I've been in society for several decades now, so I've heard of such you just things. Gotta, you got to get there. The thing is, I mean, we were in very stop-and-go traffic. The heavy... The lead foot wouldn't have worked for you. Mm. You were getting agitated I in the was. back seat. I, I'm not a good. Um, like you wanted to throw the guy out of the I'm car. Not, I'm not a good backseat driver. No. No. And I mean, that was kind. You should see what I do to poor Bobby. Well, he also couldn't hear you because you no. were trying to give him directions and he had this big, thick plastic thing. So you're like shouting at him. That wasn't very nice. No, you were not. I'm like, left. Turn left. I, I was. <laughs> I, it was very awkward for me. And I just had to, like, put my head down and hey, wait for the ride to I be over. I needed to get Guy Benson where he needed to be. And we made it safely because yeah. someone else was driving. So it's a win for all of us involved. All right, Christine. Hmm. Time to go home? Yeah, you learn something new every day. Every Another day. layer of the onion peeled back. This one is definitely making bonus Benson. Oh. Free podcast over the weekend, GuyBensonShow.com. Have a great weekend. I'm on The Big Show with Jimmy Fallon, which we didn't even mention while he was here. He and I are co-hosting on Fox News this weekend, tomorrow and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern. That'll be fun. Back here on the radio, same time, same place on Monday. Good night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.